as we transition into our teaching portion of our worship service, I'm going to invite Kristen to read the passage for us. John, John 15, 12 through 17, the word of the Lord. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Amen. Thank you, Kristen. Good morning, church family. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. Glad to have you. And uh, we have been, as a church, going through the Gospel of John since uh, September of 2000, September of 2001. No, I'm just kidding. Since September of 2017. It's now 2019. I keep having to remind myself that it's 2019, and it would be easier to remember if I ever wrote any checks, but I have not written a check actually since 2001. And... Uh, but we're, we're going through the Gospel of John, and we're on the home stretch, okay? Uh, this is uh, our first time back after Advent and kind of a break, and we're in John 15 today, and we're going to be uh, in this section called the Upper Room for a few months. I'll explain more about that in a minute, and then we're going to have the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus all around, you know, Good Friday and Easter time, and then there's a few weeks after that to kind of uh, share some of the concluding stories in the Gospel of John, and then we'll be done. Uh, I'm really thankful for this opportunity to get to walk through John. <clears throat> but I want to take a minute, and I'm going to do some extended introduction here. Because if you've been around, you know that we love to go line by line, verse by verse through the Bible. Amen? We, we love that. And if you're new, you should know that about us. We really love to just take a book of the Bible and go straight through. But there's a challenge when we get to this section called the upper room section. First of all, why is it called the upper room section? Why is it called the upper room discourse? John, the apostle, the the one who wrote this gospel, doesn't specifically say the upper room, but we see back in John 13 when they gathered for the Passover meal. And you remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and when uh, there was kind of that awkward confrontation with, with Judas Iscariot and other disciples. And so they're gathered together for the Passover meal. But if we pop over to the Gospel of Luke, which was written by... Um, Uh, Luke, uh, you'll see where we get this idea of the upper room. So Luke chapter 22, verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, that's John who wrote the gospel we're studying today. He sent Peter and John and he said, Go and prepare uh, the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said, Well, where, where should we do this? At this point, Jesus and his disciples, they're kind of on the run from the authorities. They're kind of on the run, you know, kind of hiding out. So where are we supposed to prep this meal? Where are we supposed to do it? And Jesus says, listen, behold, when you have entered the city, you're going to find this guy who's carrying a jar of water. Follow him into his house. Like, whoa. (laughs) Things that like, 
Jesus said to his disciples, things that Jesus could get away with that I can't, I can't get away with that. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, notice the capital, capital T teacher, the teacher. I think this is Jesus kind of knowing like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay under the radar, but you know, wink, wink, who is it we're talking about? Jesus, the one who the authorities are trying to come after. He, he wants to, to use your guest room. That's that kataluma for those of you who are here on the eve of the eve, that, that room where Jesus was born. Where is the guest room so I can eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished, so prepare it there. And they went, and guess what? They found it exactly as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this whole scene is taking place in this upper room. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, Judas leaves, and then what is recorded in John chapters 14 through 17 is nothing short of remarkable. There are four chapters, three of which are conversation and dialogue between Jesus and his remaining disciples, and then one full chapter, John chapter 17, in which Jesus prays for his disciples. And actually, it's not just for those disciples who are there. He actually, at one point in the prayer says, Lord, Father, I pray not just for these who are with me right now. I pray for those who will come to believe in me. So Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17, just as he is praying for us right now at the right hand of the Father. Amen? And I find it just like nothing short of miraculous that a conversation and a prayer that took place in a private upper room nearly 2,000 years ago, has been recorded and written down for us by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the disciple John so that we can listen in on this most private, most intimate conversation between Jesus and those whom he loved. Is that, is that remarkable to anybody else here? That like, like there are conversations that took place in my own home yesterday that I have no idea about. <laughs> And yet there's this conversation that took place 2,000 years ago that we get to look at. But one of the real challenges when it comes to preaching this section is it's very repetitive. How many of you know when you're reading John, it's like the themes and the ideas, they're not linear like X and then Y and then Z and because of this, then that. Like it's almost like a, it's like, it's like a, it's like more like a, I was thinking of like Debussy or something like that. It's less Mozart and more Debussy. If there's any classical music nerds in here, you're welcome. That one just came to me. But it's, it's less like Paul. You know, Paul, when you read some of his letters, he's like, well, first this and then that. And because of this, then that. And you're like, thank you. That makes sense. When you get to John particularly this section, it's like abiding and loving and the Holy Spirit and heaven and abiding and the Holy Spirit and loving and obeying and the Father and the Holy Spirit and abiding and loving. You're like, ah, like what is happening? It's like this swirling, dancing series of themes. In fact, I've, I've pulled out a number of these themes, like the Father and the Son, the relationship between the Father and Son. You know what's, here's what's amazing we're going to hear some things, not only is this conversation private, but Jesus is going to say some things about his relationship with the Father in eternity past before there ever was an earth or time or space. 
There's all sorts of stuff about the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of stuff about abiding in relationship with him. There's stuff about the world. What does it mean by the world? The world will hate you. Father, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but you'd keep them safe from the evil one. There's stuff about obedience, particularly what does it mean that, that love leads to obedience? There's themes about prayer. Not only does Jesus pray for us in John 17, but he talked about asking and receiving and all of those sorts of things. And then there's stuff about our works and what we're supposed to do. He talked about heaven. I go to my father's house. I go to prepare a place for you, all that kind of stuff. And then unity, unity in the church. The problem is, it's not just like one verse or one section that talks about it. It's like the theme of unity is kind of throughout or the theme of prayer is kind of throughout. So what I'd like to do for the next 10 weeks is I'd like to look at one of these themes each week and I'd like to draw from the entirety of John 14 through 17 uh, to teach on the Holy Spirit, to teach on the world. So for those of you who are expecting kind of like, you know, first this chunk, then this chunk, then this chunk, it's going to be a little bit different for the next few months. We will get to all of the verses. We will get to everything that it says, but we're going to do it in a topical, thematic sort of a way. Here's, here's what I'll request of you. Some of you are... Uh, I love you. Some of you are overachievers. Some of you are super Christians, okay? And I get text messages or Facebook messages, and you're like, hey, what's the passage this Sunday? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it ahead of time and study up on it. You know who you are. I love you. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to see and raise you. I will ask you for the next few months to just read and reread and reread John 14 through 17, all four chapters. And here's what I'll tell you. You, you probably won't... Now, Strike that. You won't understand and grasp all of it. The gospel of John is amazing that way. A a child can understand it. It's so simple and so accessible. A child can understand it. Yet you can spend a thousand read-throughs and still be mining up new gems from the depth of the treasures that are in this gospel. I actually was with a a Bible scholar. He's got a PhD. He does those uh, Bible project videos. I was with him and and he was kind of leading a seminar on the gospel of John. I mean, he's been teaching this stuff for years. He's teaching the seminar. And during the seminar, he had this moment where he's like, oh, whoa, I've never, I've never seen that before. And he like runs over to his notebook and like writes some stuff down. I'm like, this is amazing. So my request to you is for the next 10 weeks, let's just camp out in John 14 through 17. And you might not understand everything, but I believe you will be changed. And we'll look at these themes over the next few weeks, okay? So how's that for an extra long-winded introduction? I know some of you are thinking, Pastor Aaron, what other type of introduction do you have? Well, I went extra long-winded for you today. We're gonna look at what I think is the central theme of this entire upper room discourse, this commandment that Jesus has for us to love one another But before we look at that, would you join me in prayer? God, I ask that you would send your spirit to help us to not only understand these words with our minds, but to really embody them with our hearts. Jesus, your commandment is for us to love one another, and we want to obey that command. But God, I confess that I rely upon my own strength and my own efforts far too often. So God, would you soften our hearts right now? Would you prepare us to receive what it is you want to teach us today and what you want to do in us? God, would you guard my lips? I only want to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may this whole time be a time where we experience the love of Jesus in a new way. And all God's people said, amen. 
So I had a conversation with someone recently and they themselves would not profess to be a Christian. This person said, I don't really subscribe to any religion. And he said to me, we've gotten to know him over the last few years. Uh, and he said to me, he goes, hey, you're like a pastor, right? When do you do that? I was like, that's a weird question. <laughs> I love the kinds of questions that non-Christians ask sometimes. Like, when do you do that? I'm like, well, kind of all the time, I guess. Uh, maybe right now even. So let's see how this conversation goes. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, yeah, I'm not really like a subscriber to any religion. He goes, but somebody uh, challenged me recently to read the Sermon on the Mount he goes, you wouldn't believe this. That Sermon on the Mount is amazing. <laughs> Tell me about it. What, what was so amazing about it? And he said, well, you know, it's just the stuff that Jesus is teaching there. It's just so good and so true about like loving your enemy and, and like turning the other cheek and all this amazing stuff. He's like, it's like, I, I, I'm, I try to live my life that way. Like, that's what I believe. That's what I think we should do. This Jesus guy is like onto something because that's like really right on. I'm like, yeah, man. So he starts telling me all of the ways in which he just loves people and does all these good things. And it kind of started off, and I was just kind of, I was just biting my tongue. I was smiling in my heart and uh, just listening, lots of listening. Because it kind of, it kind of, if I'm being honest, it kind of sounded braggy. All the good things, he just how good he keeps the Sermon on the Mount stuff. But I just kept listening. And after a few minutes, well, actually there was this one guy and, uh, well, he did this really hurtful thing and, Man, I got to confess, I was, I was not thinking good thoughts in my heart about him. And, uh, and then he started telling some more. And after, I don't know, what was it, Aaron Lynn? You know, 10, 15 minutes of conversation. It was like, yeah, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't actually do it very well. He just kind of talked himself into it. And I said, well, man, it's, it's almost like we need to experience grace at times, huh? And then I kind of left it at that. And we just kind of moved on with the conversation. But it just struck me because I don't think that hardly anybody on planet earth would disagree with some sort of sentiment like we should love people more, right? Like who, who out there, you're going to, he's like, you know what? I just believe people need to love each other more. Like, well, actually I disagree. It's like, oh my gosh, like get them out of your Thanksgiving dinner or whatever's going on, right? Like almost everybody would agree with some sort of sentiment. Like we should just love people, love people, be loving. Let's just love everybody. But the problem is Nobody does it. And, and even those of us who, who like to think that that's how we want to live our life, if you just examine your life for two minutes, you'll see that there are many, many times where we fail to actually love people. Show of hands, how many of you believe we ought to love each other? Okay, good. How many of you, show of hands, be honest, sometimes don't love people very well? All right. Now that we're all on equal playing field, except for those three of you in the back who didn't raise your hands, I'm watching you. No, I'm just kidding. Or am I? <laughs> the problem is we don't love the way that Jesus commands us to love. And here's, here's what I really believe fundamentally what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, he's saying if we really truly want to be able to love people, we need to first be changed by his love. We need to receive his love. It might sound pithy, it might sound cute, but I'm gonna say it this way because it'll stick. Loved people will love people. Loved people will love people. So hold on to that. I'm just gonna march through this passage. Sometimes my sermons are a little bit more like a Bible safari where there's all sorts of twists and turns and like a rock comes rolling down the corridor or whatever. I'm just gonna almost exclusively stay in this passage. 
really tried hard. I got one other verse I'm going to go to. So if you've got your Bibles, John 15, starting in verse 12, this is what Jesus says. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what we're talking about. We've got to love people. But the as I loved you is quite in- informative, is it not? How has he loved us? Greater love. Greater love. There is no greater love than this. No one is possible of any greater love than this, than that someone will lay down his life for his friends. I'm just going to pause right there because as Jesus starts talking about love, you're going to see that Jesus' definition of love is often in stark contrast to the way that we talk about love in our culture. And the first thing we can see about Jesus' love is that it is sacrificial. Jesus says, my love is the kind of love where I lay down my life for you. You know, we use this word love, and I think most of the time, when we in our culture use the word love, what we mean is that which makes me feel good. I did not sleep well last night. I have been awake uh, since 2.30 a.m., uh, so who knows how the rest of the sermon is going to go. So I found myself saying this morning, I love coffee. And it's kicking in right now, you can tell. Uh, I love coffee because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I have slept, even though I haven't slept. Sometimes though we say that about people. Oh, I love this person. Why? Well, if you really dig into what's being said, I love this person because they make me feel good. Uh, at weddings, I always, I always enjoy doing weddings. I get to preach the gospel in front of people who probably don't know Jesus. But I love doing weddings, but I, I never let the bride and the groom write their own wedding vows. I'm a mean preacher that way uh, because usually what they write are not vows, but just expressions of sentiment and love. And while there's nothing wrong with that, I'm like, we're, we're taking vows before God and man. So let's do vows and then you can be mushy later uh, at the reception or something like that. When I hear people that do write their own vows, I actually went to a wedding recently that I was not performing. I just attended. I listened to their vows. And it was all this stuff like, I love you. You make me feel so good. It, was just, it really was. It just was as plain as day. You make me feel this way. I know that you always take care of me. It was all this stuff. I love you because it's in my own best interest. Jesus comes along and says, I love you. And therefore, I am going to lay down my very life for you. Jesus did that which was not pleasant. Jesus did that which was not in his immediate short-term best interest. It was not pleasant. It was not comfortable for Jesus to be arrested and tried and accused falsely and to be spit upon and mocked and whipped and flogged and ultimately nailed to a cross and ultimately to be rejected by God the Father himself in order that we might be saved. But friends, that's exactly what Christ Jesus has done for us. And praise God that he has done that. Praise God that his love is not, I need something from you to make me feel good. But God's definition of love is sacrificial, that he gives of himself that we might be made whole. 
John Calvin, the the great reformer, he said this. He said, God might have redeemed us by a single word or by a mere act of his will if he had not thought it better to do otherwise for our own benefit. That by not sparing his own well-beloved son, he might testify in his person how much he cares for our salvation. But now our hearts, if they are not softened by the inestimable sweetness of divine love, must be harder than stone or iron. John Calvin is saying, God shows us what his love is like. He could have redeemed us in any number of ways, but God shows us that his love is a sacrificial type of love. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you would say, yeah, there are times when my love is incredibly self-serving and not particularly sacrificial. I love because I want something from someone instead of saying, I love because I want to see you flourish and thrive and built up. Back to the text. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I want to pause right there. Jesus is saying that there's a relationship, a connection between knowing him in a love, a relationship of love and friendship and obey, obeying what he says. Now, one of the things we have to always do is we have to let scripture interpret scripture. Are we saved by our obedience? Are we in this relationship of love and friendship with Jesus because we obey him? Absolutely not. The Bible is clear, New Testament, Old Testament, from cover to cover, that we're only ever in relationship with God because of his grace. But what he is saying is, if you are my friends, if you really know my love, it's going to show up in your actions and the way you live your life. It's going to be, you can't ignore it. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I heard from my father I have made known to you. There are a couple amazing truths in there. First of all, not only is the love of Jesus sacrificial, it is an elevating type of love. Again, a lot of times what masquerades for love in our culture is to elevate ourselves. I love this person because what they do for me, how they make me feel, you know, you raise me up, right? In the words of that great theologian, is that Josh Groban? I don't even know, right? (laughs) Right, We're, we're looking for someone to make us elevated, but Jesus says, I'm lifting you up out of your lowly station. It's actually like a graduation ceremony here. Isn't this amazing? These disciples, and that's a technical term, like that's a student. These disciples are following around their rabbi in a master-student relationship, but it's like this is the moment when he hands them the diploma and they move the tassel over to the other side and they're now coming together as friends. I mean, Jesus is still in charge, but he's elevating them out of their station. I, I had the, uh, the privilege, um, I finished up my, my master's degree this last summer, and my school is in Florida, and I traveled there sometimes, I did some classes online, and the graduation ceremony happened, and it just didn't work out for me to be able to travel and participate in my graduation ceremony, but I did get to participate in my graduation ceremony by watching the live stream on YouTube, and they read my name on the internet, so that's how you know it's true. I did, I graduated. But actually what was particularly, uh, the, the moment that actually really was, was cool was when my, 
uh, degree arrived in the mail. I opened it up like, oh, this is like for real now. Like I actually did it. I have the, the proof. It's kind of like that with Jesus and his disciples there. He's like, he, he's still the master. He's still the teacher, but he elevates them. He, he lifts them up. And he discloses, the, the love that God has is a disclosing, a sharing kind of love. Do you see that he says, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You guys know the term uh, FOMO? You familiar, you familiar with FOMO? Fear of missing out, right? You guys know, do you guys, don't, don't point any fingers. You guys know anybody that's got like a severe case of the FOMO, right? Like, you're sitting there having a conversation. It's all of a sudden like, vroom, what you guys talking about? Like, well, nothing now because you've made me feel uncomfortable, right? Like, there's something where we, we, we like to be in on things. We like to know. And, and what Jesus is saying is the kind of love that I have for you, I'm just going to share everything I've got. We're friends now because we're talking on the level of friends. I'm going to open up to you and share with you what's going on behind the scenes, Friends, how many of you are grateful that God, the the God of the universe, has opened himself up to us? I think one of the things about our weak and watery version of love that we sometimes practice in our culture is we keep our guard up. We keep our walls up. I'm going to let you in, but only so far. I'm going to let you in, but not, not too far because, well, you might hurt me. But God is saying here through Jesus, I'm disclosing everything to you. Now, at this moment, it could be that pride would start to creep in, right? Oh, he's dying for me. He's lifting me up. He's telling me everything. I must be amazing. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. A couple of things, first of all. Jesus' love is an intentional, choosing type of love. This is a big one. Our culture has, by and large, bought into this idea, you can't choose whom you love. You can't choose, right? Even the expression, I I fall in love, like you're a victim, like like a pit or something, right? Most of the time, the you can't choose whom you love is used as a justification for doing all sorts of ungodly things uh, just because you felt like it. Uh, I, I have uh, uh, a wife and four daughters at home and that means sometimes there are romantic comedies playing in the house. I never watch them. I'm far too manly, okay? But sh- Sam, stop it, okay? Uh, but sometimes I just happen to see some of them, right? And like the romantic comedy one, the ones that like my wife will complain about the most are the ones where it's like someone has like made some commitment and they're supposed to get married to someone or whatever and then they meet so-and-so and then they like rush off and they go to bed with that person and they leave their fiance or whatever. And it's like, oh, I'm like, I'm supposed to feel happy about that? Like that's what's presented. I mean, just think about the movies, the rom-coms you all watch, you men. That's what's presented as love. You can't choose whom you love. And yet at the same time, here's something that, honest truth, I've never watched so much as an episode of. There's a TV show on. I've seen some promos for it. They play it during football because I'm a man. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm really overcompensating today, guys. I'm not, it, it must be the cardigan or something, but <laughs> The Bachelor. Have you heard of this show? Entering its like 12th or 13th season or something like that. It's like forever long in which they pull together one guy and they pull together 30 women and they do some sort of like serial adultery for a few weeks. And then he gets to pick the one he likes at the end. How insane is that? This is insane. But here's what's, here's why. Here's why. Our culture still knows that there is something good and true and actually loving about choice. Jesus does not love us because he just can't help himself. Jesus loves us because he says, I choose you. I want you. I love you. I want you to be my friend. I want you to be in my family. I want you to be in my kingdom, the kingdom that will last forever. Friends, that ought to both encourage us and humble us. You're loved. You're wanted. You're chosen. You didn't choose Jesus. Well, it sure feels like I chose Jesus. Fair enough. You chose Jesus, but the reality is, is you only were able to choose him because he chose you first. D.A. Carson, a Bible teacher and pastor, says, as is so often in this gospel, where there's the slightest danger that the disciples will puff themselves up because of the privileges they enjoy, Jesus immediately just shuts that all down. In the final analysis, his followers are privy to such revelation, not because they're wiser or better and consequently made the right choices, but because Christ chose them. We chafe against this. But I think that even silly things in our culture like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette show us that there is something really romantic and beautiful in being chosen. And friends, we've been chosen by Jesus, not because we're so amazing, but because he's so amazing. Let that humble you and let that encourage you. But you also see, he says, I, I, you did not choose me, I chose you and I've appointed you to go and bear fruit. So Christ's love is number five, active Right, Even that phrase, when I fall in love, it's like this state of being, right? You fall in love, you fall out of love, you're either in love or out of love. It's like you're either in coverage for your cell phone or out of coverage for your cell phone. It's like this state of being. But what Jesus is saying, no, my kind of love says, let's do something about it. Jesus' love was active. Jesus did not remain in heaven and just say, I love you. I think warm, fuzzy thoughts about you. No, Jesus left heaven's glory and took on the glory of a crown of thorns for you and for I. How many of you are thankful that Jesus' love is active that way? And he says, and you're shaped by my love, your love will also be active. Husbands, that means you serve your wives. Wives, that means you serve your husbands. Parents, that means you serve your children. Neighbors, that means you serve those who are in your life. Co-workers, you serve your bosses and your co-workers. We, we put love into action because Christ put his love into action. He wants us to bear fruit for him. One of the convictions we have here is that every member of the church is a missionary. There are no professional Christians and, and, and bystanders or observers at Sound City Bible Church. There may be, but that's not the intention. That's not the hope. The hope is that each and every single one of you would know that Christ has loved you and he's equipped you and he's gifted you and he's placed you somewhere unique where you can put his active love into place. 
And did you notice that his love is incredibly generous? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Oh, some of you might feel like God's love towards you is a begrudging type of love. Maybe it's something you saw in your earthly father. Maybe it's fears or lies that you've believed. But for whatever reason, you've bought into this idea that God is only just giving you just a little bit of his love. Jesus is saying, God is so generous that whatever we ask in his name, he'll give it to us. Now, granted, there are things that sometimes we ask for that are not good for us, right? And God's a loving heavenly father. It's like when my kids ask for like the 18th sugary treat of the day. And I'm like, no, I draw the line at 17 sugary treats, right? So God sometimes says no to us because the things we're asking for are not actually what's best for us. But, but the point being, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, whatever it is that you truly need, whatever it is that he truly has for you, that's what God has for you. Friends, I'm, I'm pleading with you. Don't judge your heavenly father on the basis of stinginess from your earthly father or fears or, or low self-esteem type of lies and things you might believe about yourself. Look at what God himself says, that he will pour out the riches of the treasures of heaven for his children. He who would not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us all things? And if we've been loved that way by God, then, then our love can stand to be more generous. I think sometimes we're, like we're rationing our love. I know that's something that maybe like younger parents sometimes go through, but I think it shows up in other areas of life too. I'm, I'm even, you know, having your first kids, like how could I love anyone more than that? And then you have a second one, it's like, oh no, now I have to split my love 50-50. But those of you who've been parents, no, it doesn't work that way. All of a sudden, this whole new pile of love just shows up and it's like you've got more love to give to the other kid. It's not like you, you know, well, I love you half as much as I used to and now I have to, no, it's not, it just doesn't work that way. God's not that way with us and so the, the call for us is to be generous. If you look at 1 John, the, the letter written by the same apostle, he says, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods, if anybody's got money, and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him? Man, how can God's love even really reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. And then Jesus finishes this section with the same commandment again. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And I'll just simply say this. Jesus' love is commanding. And actually, you can almost even use the word demanding. Like, it's really hard. This is a lot. Jesus commands us to love, but like I've been saying from the beginning, what he commands, he provides. When we are shaped by his love, when we've received his love, we're able to do it. N.T. Wright says this way, he says, you can't legislate for love. Like, you can't just make a law that says, love everybody. Like, okay. But God, through Jesus, can command you to love. Discovering the difference, 
between what the law cannot achieve and what God can and does achieve is one of the great arts of being human and of being Christian. In the present passage, we are brought in on the secret of it all. The command to love is given by one who has himself done everything that love can do. When a mother loves a child, she creates the context in which the child is free to love her in return. Isn't that good? When a ruler really does love his or her subjects, and when this becomes clear by generous and warm-hearted actions, he or she creates a context in which the subjects can and will love them in return. Jesus has done everything that love can do. So when he commands us, when he demands from us everything, we can do it because his love is that amazing. It's like the hymn by Isaac Watts says, it says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that is an offering far too small Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. What has Jesus withheld from us? Nothing. So if we really are loved, like we've been loved by Jesus, we're now able to love people. Like I said at the beginning, loved people will love people. Loved people will love people. And it's so important because, again, that problem, like I said at the beginning, nobody's going to disagree with you. We should all love each other. But if any of you are interested in actually being able to love others, you need to be loved by Jesus. Some of you are here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ. And, and, and today, Christ's offer of love is for you. That you would open up and receive his love so that you could be shaped and changed and so that you actually could follow his commandment to love other people. We got a whole world full of people saying things like, we should all just love each other. How's it going? How's that working for us? Let Christ's love shape you and change you. Let me, let me give three practical how-tos as I, as I bring this to a close. The first one is this. I want you to remember that Jesus is the definition of love. You are going to leave here. Maybe you're going to, I don't know, watch a movie, maybe even a romantic comedy. And they're going to say something. Oh, I love this person or love. You're going to, you're going to hear a song. It comes on the radio. and It's going to start talking about love. And in that moment, I challenge you to think, how are they talking about love? What kind of love are they describing? What does it look like? What does it do? Is it this Jesus type of love or is it a self-fulfilling, selfish, guarded, secretive type of, what kind of love is it? If it's not Jesus love, then it falls, for, fall, falls far short of what he has for us. So I'm encouraging you to think, to engage your mind. Just just notice that. I've probably ruined all the movies and songs you're going to listen to this week for you. You're welcome. Uh, these are the kinds of conversations my poor kids have to sit through. We're like watching a show or something like that. Pause. Like if, if it's not me, it's my wife. And then they get the lecture. And like, can we just watch the movie? We're just we're trying to watch the Disney channel or something. Yeah, we're wrong. And because Roman says this, I'm like, it's terrible being a pastor's kid. Pray for my children. But I'd love to share that joy with all of you. Okay. 
think critically about what the world says about love and evaluate it according to the definition that Jesus gives us. Number two, when, not if, you act unloving this week, I want you to remind yourself that you are loved. If my main idea is true, and I really think it is, when you are acting sinful and harsh and rude and ungracious and unloving, it's because you've forgotten just how loved you are. Why would I act that way if I really was living in the awareness that I was chosen and loved and treasured by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? When, when, you're, when you're wanting to act rude towards your spouse or towards your children or towards that coworker or whatever, like when, you're, when you find that, like, oh, where did that ugliness come from? Remind yourself, you're loved. You are loved. No, like more than that, you are loved. You are loved. You're loved. Marlene, you're loved. Cornelia, you're loved. By God. John, you're loved. You're loved. We don't live in that awareness enough. And what comes out of us is all sorts of ungraciousness and grasping for something that we already have in Christ Jesus. I just camp out here for another 30 minutes on that point, but I'm, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do it and trust him. Number three, when they are acting unloving, and you can fill in the they as you see fit, maybe you've been given an opportunity to let them know that they are loved. And instead of responding in kind, instead of pulling out the emotional machine gun and just shooting them all you know, full of holes and blasting them down because they're acting like a jerk and they're doing this and they're doing that, maybe, just maybe, Jesus wants his love to shine through you so that his kingdom could come here in the North Puget Sound suburbs just as it is in heaven. So this week, again, hypothetically, you might encounter someone who's acting less than loving. When it's you, remind yourself of the love that you've been given in Christ Jesus. When it's someone else, I mean, maybe it's someone who's not even a believer in Jesus. They don't even know that they're loved. They don't even know that the king has given his life for them. In just a moment, we're going to go to the table. We're going to eat and drink of the bread and and drink of the cup, and we're going to celebrate Christ's love given to us. We're going to sing. We're going to bring the younger students class in to join us with this. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment. I want to pray so that we can have our hearts reminded of Christ's love for us. Jesus, we, we come to you now. We thank you that you've given us this incredible definition of love. And not only do you describe it for us, but Jesus, you acted it out. You gave your very life for us on the cross. And Jesus, when we've been changed by you, you you ask us, you command us to live in a way that's in accordance with this love. Jesus, I confess that I often fall short of your standard of love. Would you forgive me? Would you remind me 
just how loved I am by you. And for each and every single person here, may we experience your love as we now prepare ourselves to come to the table and to sing and to celebrate the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Amen.